don't defend your idea choices. If someone says something to the effect of, hmm, it's interesting you have um, purple over here on the call to action button. Well, yeah, that's because, you know, uh, I come from royalty and I really like the color purple. It's like, hold, hold on. <laughs> no defending the ideas. Just sit there and final rule, say thank you. stage here is Eric Moore and he and I were talking about different styles of critiquing and we thought this would be useful and helpful for anybody who's ever been in a position where maybe you're on the raw end of a critique where you were made to feel less than and the person that you were talking to whether it's an instructor or an art director or some some person in the management position or a client god forbid just let you have it and just humiliated you and you walked out, tail tucked between legs, and you didn't feel like you could hear anything. All you felt was this emotional rage bubbling up inside of you, spilling out. Maybe your hands were shaking. Maybe you even went to the bathroom later and shed a tear or two. Well, we're going to talk about different critiquing styles. Um, and uh, Eric and I are going to take this on from a couple of different points of view. Me, mostly, um, I want to spend some of the time talking about what I learned teaching for 15 years, my evolution as an instructor using a Socratic method, and actually even hiring a professional um, teaching instructor to help coach me up because I just feel teaching is such a big part of my own identity and a big part of teaching is critiquing. And Eric's going to take a different spin on it. Eric, take it away. Thanks, Chris. Hello, everybody. My name's Eric Moore. Sometimes you know me as the design thinker, and I spend a lot of time with communications, helping executives and new leaders understand how to put design thinking to work in the way they communicate and lead. And I also do a little thing called nonviolent communication. But being nonviolent in my words doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes we have to lay down some critique that might feel a little uncomfortable. Well, let's talk about this. And I want to use a fancy word here. It's called pedagogy. It's like teaching yes. theory. And I think we're going to delve into that. And I happen to have a deck here uh, that I took notes from my six-week-long session with Dr. Samuel Holtzman, who is in charge of faculty development at Art Center super brilliant person and changed the way that I critique. And so maybe I can begin with a story. So some of you may know this, but I went to a really amazing um, art school, art and design school in Pasadena called Art Center. And I remember first term, first semester, I'm in this class with the, one of the most brilliant teachers I've ever had in, in art and, and design. His name is Roland Young. And Roland Young is a petite Asian man. At that time, he was really old and he's even older now. He has like shocking white hair very short, like a buzz cut. And he always wore the same clothes, sweatpants and a sweatshirt with like sneakers. And he came in, I'm like, who is this older Asian man? And what is he doing? Like, I, I didn't get it. But the class was called communication design. And I didn't even know what that meant. I just like, I thought this was graphic design. But what Roland taught us how to do was how to come up with ideas, how to communicate that in what many people would associate with like advertising communication, it's conceptual thinking, how you're able to use symbols and semiotics to communicate a bigger message where one plus one equals 11. And it was a big mental stretch for me. But part of the class was we were all on pins and needles, A, because Roland is brilliant. 
I remember calling my mom um, a couple of weeks into the class saying, mom, I think I met my first genius. He is a creative genius because he'll look at your, your drawings and it's like, there's no idea there. And he'll come up, he'll look at, he'll squint, he'll tilt his head a little bit. And then he'll go to the chalkboard. He'll draw something. He goes, do you mean this? And everybody's like, oh my God, how did he see that? It was all there, all the ingredients, flour, egg, salt, whatever. And then he turns it into this amazing pastry or whatever. It's this creation. And we were all just blown away. So everybody was on edge. Also because Roland came from the old school, the old school of thinking and learning. He went to Art Center way back in the day when they would humiliate students as just a warm-up activity. And he had a little bit of that edge with him. I remember one time, there was a gentleman, his name is James. I won't betray James's last name. But James was in design, and he was a tall guy. I think he had actually a mullet and a jean jacket, and so he's kind of this rocker sensibility. And he made this ad for Fender guitars. And he had the guitar and it was tied up to a stake and like it was a witch or something and, and there was a fire around it. And Roland looked at him and James towers over him by like a foot at least, probably more if I, my memory serves me correct. And Roland looks at him and he looks at the work. He says, are you a designer? I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be bad. And I'm already feeling it. It's not my critique. And I, I'm just sensing within the room, everybody's tightening up really tight. And, and James like, yes. He goes, I don't think you are. I was like, oh my God, where's this going to go? Like, where do you go from that? Here's a person that everybody respects and he's getting torn apart. And then Roland says, you know, look at her. Look, look at this woman. Her name's GA, small, super small, petite Korean woman. And says, you see like the way she dressed? Like, look at her face, look at her scarf, look at her. Everything that she put together today was designed. I don't think you're a designer. And there wasn't like, a debate. It was just his opinion, almost stated from God to this person. And I was like devastated for James. I didn't know what happened, but we all kind of just emotionally recovered. But there were these moments that happened in between these illuminating, brilliant moments with Roland and moments where he just tore people apart. He tore them apart. Like the kind of person who would take your work and just flick it off the rail and it would just fall on the ground and just, and just move on and not even say a word. I didn't see that personally, but I've heard stories and I believe them. So, you know, the interesting thing with James is this, is that James later on, unbeknownst to me, drops out of design. He's still in, in school and I'm still in class with him. But what happened was he switched over to advertising. For some reason, in that one moment, Roland could see something that he was not meant to be a designer. So he switched over to advertising and then many years later, fast forward, he winds up teaching advertising at Art Center and becomes a prominent person at Art Center. And that story, that moment still haunts me to this day. And there's something about my style of critique and the way that I communicate that in one way pays homage to, to professors like Roland, who sometimes they lay down the truth in a way that's very difficult to hear, using very violent language. And I feel that the opposite of this are instructors who give you a pat on the back, who say everything is great, and then you graduate from school and you can't get a job, and you feel like the entire institution has failed you. There's got to be some kind of balance in between these two moments, because both of them don't fit within the modern 21st century way of thinking and teaching and critiquing work. At least that's my opinion. So I'm going to pause there and throw it back over to you, Eric. I think he did him a favor. He would have wasted a ton of time. 
being something he really wasn't good at, perhaps. Is that a takeaway that you had from that story, Chris? Yeah, well, I can only tell you the stories that I know of, the ones that I've found out after the fact, and there's evidence of it, where it worked out. I don't know the times in which he said something so soul-crushing that something really bad happened where somebody goes into a deep state of depression and can't emotionally recover from this and is so shell-shocked that they completely just drop out. That perhaps if somebody had just taken them under their wing and, and helped them to find a roadmap back, I don't know of those stories. I do know that people drop out all the time because it's a very rigorous program. It is not easy to get through, especially if you really apply yourself. The standards are impossibly high. Uh, I think teachers make it a point to give you more work than they know you can do, knowing that you have four or five other instructors that are asking you to do the exact same thing. So there's something out there. But I'll tell you now my own moment here. Um, so many years after I graduated school, I'm invited to come in and do senior review at Otis. And they invite a handful of industry professionals to do a midpoint check-in for seniors for their thesis project. One, I just thought that calling it a thesis project for undergrads was a little kind of ambitious because they're mostly learning tools and production techniques. So what kind of thesis could you possibly have? And as often as the case, they bring in some heavy hitters from, from ILM, um, from, from very prominent design studios from LA and from around. So they all carry a lot of prestige with them. And I've been teaching at Otis for, for a number of years, so I'm used to seeing these students. So I'm here for senior review and we're cramped in, uh, we're all packed in tiny, tiny little computer lab, super hot, that could have contributed to some parts. And I remember telling myself this thing, because I've been known to do this before, Eric. This is like my less evolved state, which is I tend to get really into the work and critique it pretty heavy, not in a personal attack way, but I really will tell you, here's everything that I'm seeing, feeling, and thinking, and my reactions to it with a couple of pieces of uh, information as to how you might move forward. Um, but sometimes it goes poorly. Like I can tell people recoil when I do that. So I was telling myself, Chris, don't Hulk out. You know, Bruce Banner, the Incredible Hulk, like you won't like me when I'm angry. She's like, just, just keep it chill today. It's just a light day. And so this woman was presenting her work and she presented a music video that she'd been working on for a whole semester because this is like the second to last semester and supposedly she should be pretty far along here. And I don't say anything at all. And the um, assistant department chair goes from one guest to the next and asks them for their opinions. And I can tell what's happening right now. So the first person would step up and they'd say something nice. They'd talk about something, just dancing around the issue. And it's glaring to me. And the next person would go, similar things. Third person. Everybody's just giving her an easy pass. And I can feel my temperature rising. Like my blood is starting to boil. Not so much that this woman's work needs a lot of work and it's kind of disappointing. But I'm disappointed in my colleagues. These are professional industry titans, captains of industry, and they're not saying anything. So this poor woman, the way I saw it, was going to graduate from this program with a really terrible portfolio. I'm, I'm trying to say that like objectively, like it's really not good. And she won't know why, and she won't know how, and she won't know where to go. And so then I got angry. 
but I can't get angry at my fellow professional industry people critiquing the work. So what happens? I, a switch goes off in my brain and I didn't want to say anything. But at that time, Art Dorinsky says, Chris, do you have anything to add in the way that art does? Like pitch goes higher, uh, head goes higher and tilts to the right. Almost as if baiting me and knowing that the shark is just like ready to devour. And with that, that switch got flipped. So I said, I looked at the work. I mean, I was looking at the work and I said to, to her, it's like, what is it that you aspire to do when you're done with school? And she said, I want to be a music video director. I said, okay, so uh, whose band is this that you shot? Oh, it's my brother's punk rock band. I said, okay, so I, I work with directors. I am one myself to kind of qualify. Usually what a director has is a vision, a way of looking at the music and interpreting the, the lyrics and bringing something to it. What I see is a three camera setup that's locked off that you cut between the three with almost no lighting, no narrative, nothing. To me, it looks like your camera operator based on this piece that you made. So can you tell me what it is that you wanted to say about the way you look at the world with this piece? She didn't say anything. And I could feel the room. I mean, because it went from like kind of nice fluffy comment to nice fluffy comment to just me going, boom. I don't know what happened. I felt like I blacked out. And I, I could just feel all the adrenaline in me. It's just like this huge dump. And then I walked out of the room after the critique was done. She kind of just looked at me stunned like a deer in the headlights. I walk out in the hallway where it's a little cooler. I'm like, oh my God, what did, what did I just say? What did I do? Why did I do this? And then a bunch of students came out. They gathered around me like in a circle. I was like, oh no. They're going to tell me I was just a demon. And they looked at me and they cut the tension by saying, oh my God, all semester long, we've been waiting for someone to say this. And I just can't believe she got a pass up until now. And I was still like in kind of a little bit of shock myself. Like, why did I say all those things? Why is it my responsibility to say this? Four other people talked before me. Okay, pause on the story. Many years later, as I have interns coming from Otis, students, you know, and then one of them comes up to me many years later, probably two or three years later, and said to me, Chris, you remember that girl that you critiqued? I'm like, which one? There's been so many. You know, the one that, I'm like, oh, that one? And I was like, oh, no. I don't like those. Do you remember that time that you did that thing and how those stories began? Because I was bracing like, oh, my God, did I ruin her life? What happened? And they said, She's a very successful photographer now. I think something that you said to her flipped a switch in her brain and she got her act together. And now she's doing well taking photos. And I was relieved because, you know, maybe I was rolling young in that moment. I don't know. You and your colleagues at Otis, did you knowingly play good cop, bad cop? No, we didn't even know each other. We're invited, we accept, and we show up. And it's always a different group of people. I thought you were going to tell me the the young lady got a pass by everybody because she was the daughter of the head of Paramount or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be put in mouth moment there for me if yeah, that was the case. Like, Career over. That's a resume updating moment for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why okay. I never got invited back. I'm just kidding. I did. <laughs> no. So uh, there's a couple of things I've taken away from there, but even though you didn't knowingly do it, I, I, I could see value in having, you know, what we might call good cop, bad cop, you know, where there's some 
gentle ways of expressing some feedback. And then there's Chris, you know, which I, I didn't quite take that as a Hulk out, but I understood what you were feeling in at the moment. Um, like, why is she getting a pass? We need, we're not doing her any favors. She's paying all this money to get this education, presumably. You know, so you have to give it the way you had. So what did you learn from that? You asked me what I learned from that? Yeah, not not the refresh, but the, <laughs> the, the you know, yeah. stepping out of the room yeah. and hearing the students essentially validate your thoughts. Well, it's it's something that uh, my, my evolution and my style of critiquing and looking at work is very different from the way it started. I think initially when people invite me to look at work, I just assume that that was a true invitation to say, Chris, based on your professional experience, can you give me that Roland Young Art Center critique? And now we used to do that. And I could just tell like people did not want to see it or hear it. Most people just want to hear nice things about their work. And so as it evolved, I would then ask people when they say, what do you think? I would ask them, how can I help you today? And you know, the interesting thing when I do portfolio reviews is when I ask that question, sometimes they don't even ask me to critique the work. They just say, they'll just say like, um, what do you think about this portfolio case? And in my mind, I'm thinking, what a waste of my time. If this is really what, what you want from me is to critique your portfolio case, I'll be happy to do it. But you, friend, are going to be in deep trouble in the future. So I just say, oh, the case looks nice. It's soft and, you know, it looks professional and the latches work really well. And I don't even offer anything that's not solicited. So now I try to operate from this place of unless you give me explicit permission and you direct it towards what it is that you want, I will not say anything. Because I realized something in my desire, in my spirit to help people, what I was doing was not being perceived as helpful. And I can just tell. And so what I learned from the experience is it's not my obligation or duty to do the job of what the instructors that got to this moment didn't do and what these other professional people did not say either. And I was just really upset. And I wasn't upset at her. I was just upset at the institution, at the system. Now, of course, they have produced many brilliant students before and other uh, critiques have gone really well. But this one in particular stood out to me because it was one of those moments where everything up until this point failed and I didn't want to be that last lever in a machine that fails people. Like, you know how they say um, the system allows people to fall through the cracks and are left behind? To me, at least, I interpreted this situation as an example of that and I just couldn't sit with my hand, you know, sit on my hands and say nothing. I just, I feel like I would betray myself. And so shortly thereafter, I stopped doing these critiques because I can't reconcile that part. So I, I've learned that if I can't get permission from the person in a way that's clear, in a way that helps them, then I, I just should not show up. Because it's like me seeing an injustice and sitting by and saying, well, um, social norms dictate that I just bite my tongue. And so I stopped doing those critiques. Not immediately, but I just stopped doing them. What did you think I should have learned, Eric? You can't ask me that, Chris. It's your journey. Well, you have a perspective. I can ask you for your opinion. But I would not tell you how you should learn something. Okay, so tell me what your perspective is. I think you hit it pretty well, frankly, which is, um, you know, having digging into a sense of duty what you said ended up being justified. So there's just an element of that where you can sleep well at night. But I do like the 
maybe it's nuance is not the right word, but the the distinction you make between um, I'm not here to just to be critical of her, but like the system's failing her and I want to help her. You're like an Avenger keeping in with the Hulk theme. <laughs> You're seeing someone potentially slip through the cracks. And I like that. But then I think you're going to share with us next. What was the next evolution from there? How did you become more nuanced? How did you get to, I don't know, say an environment where that type of feedback was welcomed or invited? Right. Now, Eric, it would probably not surprise you or anyone here that I did develop a particular reputation at both Art Center and Otis as one of the hardest instructors. Not because I gave him so much work, but because there was just going to be nowhere to hide. And I'm just a real straight shooter. I would tell people, first day of class, what is it you want to learn? We will design this entire class around the things that you feel are most important. Because I take uh, great responsibility in delivering my end of the bargain. I'm not here to phone it in. The other thing I want to say is this, is if you're here because you want to get a credit and you don't want to do the work, I'm totally cool with that because I'm not your mom or your dad. I'm not here to babysit you. So I really don't care if you don't want to do the work. I won't even ride you on it, but don't do this one thing. Don't skip out on the work and then ask for time and attention because I'm going to give it to the people who do show up and that's the bargain we have. Okay. So if you want to, you know, slack off, play video games, totally fine with me. I'll give you a C, maybe a D and you should be okay with that. Focus on the classes that are important. My ego isn't that uh, sensitive that if you don't feel like this is one of your important classes, totally fine by me but I'm not going to reward you either for not doing the work. And then the class begins. Now, the evolution of this is this, is one time during a faculty meeting, I was introduced, introduced to Dr. Holtzman and Art Center was going through a, a period of evolution uh, where they wanted to um, unify or, or have some kind of uniform way of teaching and, and the classes were kind of similar and students would know going in what it is that they were uh, learning. So he was in charge of developing with Allison Goodman a rubric so that every class, there was clear learning outcomes, the course learning outcomes, CLOs, and there were the assignments that you had to present and what the assignments were designed to do relative to the course learning outcomes. So if you don't know what a rubric is, it's kind of a fancy word. It's just like a, like a grid. You could think of it as an Excel spreadsheet. So on the x-axis at the top, you would list the learning outcomes. Like for example, if you want to teach typography, um, one learning outcome is to be proficient at using three typefaces or understanding scale balance and contrast uh, and understanding principles of repetition and figure ground ambiguity. Let's just say those, those are not what you would want to learn, but let's just say those are it. And then you would list how many assignments down the Y axis and you would say, okay, assignment number one is basic composition. Assignment number two, uh, using one typeface. Assignment three, design a poster for a museum or something. And then you would put in the parameters so that each assignment was specifically designed to touch upon the learning outcomes. So it was very professional way of teaching. So we had to think about the assignments relative to the, the learning outcomes. The reason why we needed to do this was it needed to fit in uh, uh, into the larger curriculum so they could know like who's before you, who's after you and what skills don't need to be taught again in theory. Does that make sense? So all these assignments 
didn't have to teach all five learning outcomes, but they had to touch on a few such that when completed, the student will learn all five things. Now, Dr. Holtzman had this worksheet and that he shared with us, I'll pull up here. And the worksheet goes something like this. He says, whenever he's working with a new instructor who he's been tasked with onboarding, he'll ask him these, some, some of these questions. And you'll want to get a pen out for this part. So I'm just going to warn you here since this is an audio only format. So the questions are something like this. What do we want our students to learn? What do we want our students to know, to understand, to experience, to be aware of, and to be able to do? So it's a little worksheet. So that's the beginning that helps you to start thinking about the learning outcomes. And then he has two follow-up questions, which is how do we know that they know and are able to do? So that's some kind of criteria, an objective criteria. And then to what degree? And I find that these questions to be amazing because whenever I'm writing a talk or doing a workshop, I ask myself these things. What do, what do I want the participants to learn, to know, to understand, experience, to be aware of, and to be able to do? Now, some of the answers will be the same, but that's okay. So you think about like, what do we want them to experience? Well, I want my students to have fun. I want them to feel relaxed. I want them to feel like someone knows what they're doing, but is also at the same level as them. It's not a hierarchical classroom. I want them to be able to laugh at themselves and each other. That's the experience part, right? And so when you start with that, all of a sudden you start thinking about your assignments differently and how you teach. And so doing it this way was so structured that at first, a lot of instructors are kind of rebelled against this, like, no. I'm not doing it this way. I mean, ultimately, everybody had to fall in line. But I was one of those instructors. I don't know what I'm going to teach until I teach it. I have a couple assignments, and they get changed based on the students. And my style of teaching is we theoretically have a schedule, but the schedule can change because if students are stuck, there's no point for me to move on to assignment number two or number three. Or I'll redesign assignment two to solve the problem where the majority of class is stuck. And like in the Forrest Gump movie, where Tom Hanks says, you know, life's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Well, with our center students, you never know what you're going to get either. They come in at all different skill sets, a different uh, mastery of uh, uh, like tools, a different background. So it's always a mixed bag. Um, so my, my teaching style has evolved a lot. And so something else that Dr. Holtzman talks about is this concept called scaffolding towards autonomy. And what you're trying to do is you're not trying to create robots who are your, are your workers and you're the art director because it creates a codependent relationship where they go home each day, they try to figure out what to do and they can't because they don't have you there to tell them what to do. And so we change the focus away from telling the students what to do, which is very prescriptive, into saying and sharing how we make decisions how we see. So it's very different. So I don't tell you what to do. I just tell you what I see, what I experience, what I feel, and how I make decisions. And then you as a student are asked, what would you like to do? This is not the Roland Young School of Teaching, right? This is very different. So what we have to do is we have to have clear learning outcomes. The assignments need to be designed to tailor fit into those outcomes. We have to share how we're going to grade and assess the work. 
that's how you make decisions, right? And then we have to show examples as a benchmark for what they should be able to do. This is at least the theory. And so the objective or the goal then is to shift students from being defensive to defending choices, from being emotional to being objective. And instead of us pushing information in, the students pull it out of themselves. And it's a pretty radically different way of teaching. Now, some of you may be of this modern pedagogical teaching style, then you're like, duh. But, you know, I graduated in 1995 and I was taught by people who probably went to school in the 70s or 80s. So it's a very different thing. Well, I appreciate the share. Um, and no, I don't think it's duh. I think there's still a lot of old school rubrics out there. So uh, don't be too critical on yourself. Does Dr. Holtzman have a, a position on critique? He does. His way is, um, he has a lot of different theories and, and, and expressions, so I'm hoping that I do it justice by sharing it with you. Um, so he, he has this thing called eye to eye, eye to get to eye. So what we do is we share individual experiences, like what I'm feeling, and those, those experiences are an invitation for the student to be more introspective. So if I share my way, naturally the default is in the mind of the student, it leads to what's, what's my way then? So Chris has a way, Eric has a way. What is my way? And, and this allows for a lot more room than to just try to, um, to show up to class or to look at the work in the same way that the, the instructor does. And so we're trying to create experiences for each individual, sharing observational techniques and decision-making processes. And so what we wanna do is we wanna facilitate, not so much teach, within a shared criteria. So he calls this the, the criterion for, for a critique, is it? Yeah, so how are we going to look at the work? So I remember when I first started working with him at Art Center, he said, Chris, when you're teaching sequential design, what are the five things that you're looking for? And I was a little thrown back like, oh, okay. And I said, all right, well, when we're designing storyboards, the first thing we're looking for is clarity. Is it clear, is it confusing? So without it being clear, I, I can't continue on. And you would think that's pretty silly. Why would students make storyboards that are unclear? Well, you haven't seen these storyboards before, right? Because when you're not a confident designer, what you do is you add lots and lots of things because you're not sure that there's anything there. But everything you add impedes my ability to read the frame. So is it clear? And the next one is, it, is it interesting? Because you could be clear and uninteresting. That doesn't really help me. So you have to create a sense of drama. So the decision-making process that I'm going through at that point is, is it dramatic or is it boring? And there's, there's tools that we can use to make it more interesting by framing it differently, by using a different lens, by controlling the light or the composition of the objects in the frame. Like Wes Anderson has a very, very specific way of shooting his films, mostly symmetrical, everything pointing towards a single point perspective almost. And then if it's clear and it's interesting, does it build a sequence? Or is it a non sequitur? So every frame I can tell what's going on. It's really dramatic. You've got me hooked in. But it's jarring because when I try to add it up, I, I can't figure it out. Sequential design is they're supposed to flow from frame to frame. I, as a person looking at it, should be able to tell the story and read between what's happening between the frames. What Scott McCloud calls in his book, um, Understanding Comics, I think that's what it's called, is called Closure. Our mind fills in the gaps between the two frames that we can see. 
And it can only happen if you're very intentional on in how you set up the shots. So the criteria number four is, does it lead to a satisfying conclusion? So it has flow, it's interesting, it's clear. And, but when I get to the end, I'm like, yeah, and so what? So you you have to introduce an element of surprise that's been set up within the previous frame. So at the end, you're like, whoa, I didn't realize we're inside of a tiny microverse, whatever it is. Not a great example. So it has to have a satisfying conclusion that interrupts expectations. And the last one is, okay, now that we've got this thing, can we introduce transitional elements to make the story flow even better? So in that way, he's like, great, write this up, tape it to the wall, right? One, clear, two, dramatic, three, sequential, four, satisfying, disruptive conclusion, number five, transitions. And so the next class, he sat in the class and he watched me work. So I would tape this up on the wall, like three printouts, and then we put up the work. Now I would ask each student, based on the criteria, the shared criterion for critique, how would you interpret this work? Now there's a couple other things that we do here, which I've evolved into. The person who's receiving the critique doesn't say anything. One of their classmates takes notes for them because it's very different when it's not your work, what you were able to write notes. And then the person and the class together critique the work. And my job as the instructor is to help people say like, what is it about the sequence as it relates to the criterion of being clear might you want to point out? So I'm not going to tell them what it is, but I'm going to direct them to towards looking at that. So they're like, okay, Chris is saying something about this isn't clear. What frame isn't clear? What can we do about it? So what happens inevitably is it's very efficient to be prescriptive and give people your feedback. I like this. I don't like that. Here's what I would do. Here's what you should do. Whatever. Super efficient. I could do that in minutes. Doing it this way takes hours. So I had to change my class from three hours to five hours because with eight students, I couldn't get through all of them. So self-discovery takes time and you have to be really patient. A lot to unpack there, Dr. Doe. <laughs> time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to our conversation. What does this look like from a professional business client interaction and that's where I can maybe add some input, but I want to make sure we get to the students first. Um, Jason, I know from Art Center. Jason, what's your story? Hey, Chris, thanks for having me on. Um, I was saying thank you because every time that I've interacted with you in the past over the years, like you've always made time for questions, like no matter who's asking for your time. And I really respect that you always, you know, give attention to people when they ask for it and, you know, give really helpful answers. So I just want to say thank you first off. Um, second is I was a student at Art Center from 2009 to 2015. 
And critiques was, you know, critique was the one thing that I really looked forward to because it was always really, really entertaining, you know, not just educational, but super entertaining, really fun. I viewed it from the standpoint of, um, you know, this is a point for me and my classmates to share what we've been working on to build camaraderie, to learn from each other. And my takeaway from critique every time in class was that, you know, this is an opportunity to not just learn from our instructor, but I often found that I actually learned more from my classmates because when you put your work up on the wall, you know, it is the great equalizer. Like everyone sees how much effort you put in. And then everyone also gets to see what other people are doing. They get to learn from that. They learn new techniques. They learn new ideas. It's, you know, that is the core experience for Art Center for me was critique because you could spend all night, literally overnight, right? Working on your project, heads down, not looking at what other people are doing. And then come that morning, 8 a.m., class starts, you put your work up on the wall. That's the first time that you get exposed to, you know, 29, well, not 29, but like 15 other ways to that you're tackling. And that's when you see, oh, I could have done it this way, or I could have done it that way, or, oh, I've never this problem from that perspective. So right away, without even the instructor coming up and actually critiquing your work yet, like you're already scanning the room, you're seeing what other people are doing, you're learning. And during my first couple terms, when I was in color theory, my instructor was Adam Ross. Adam Ross teaches color theory at Art Center. Um, what, one of his notable uh, students is, um, what's that guy from Lincoln Park? <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm having a brain fart. But Chester? One of the guys from Lincoln Park. Yeah, Chester, um, who, who did all their album art himself. And he told us a lot of stories like that. But what's great about Adam was that he had this one um, question that he would always ask us during critique that um, was like this light bulb moment. And that one question was, what is your relationship to X? He would go up during critique. He would look at someone's work. He would, you know, look at it, put his hand on his chin, do the head tilt, go, hmm, interesting, right? And everyone would think, why? What's so interesting? What What do you see that we don't? And he would look at the student and say, so-and-so, Eric, for example, Eric, what is your relationship to pop? And everyone would be like, what? what do you mean? What is your relationship to pop, to pop art? Because I'm looking at your work here and it looks like it's heavily influenced by pop. And people were expecting Adam to, you know, dive into specifics about composition and layout and, and, and all the technical jargon. But instead, you know, he, he, he flipped it and, and he would ask us a very personal question. He would say, what is your relationship to be different for, for person to person based on what kind of work that they but I found that really interesting because that question that single question made us question you know what is it that influences our work what is it that we're taking in um, at an unconscious level that's influencing what we output on the wall and that one question led to many other questions that really dug up a lot of personal history for, for each student that made us better understand ourselves and our influences and 
what goes into the decisions that we make that ultimately end up as what we produce and put up on the wall. By asking that one question, it always led to the aha moment for for understanding ourselves as a designer, as a person. And I, I just thought that was genius. Thanks for sharing, Jason. Yeah, so I was thinking about this and I'm like, Chris, yes, you're an awesome teacher, but we aren't all teachers. <laughs> so how do I actually put this to use? Um, and I'm hoping I'm not ruffling your feathers too much, but I do love your stories, but let's, let's talk about some of the business. Let's do it. Yeah. So typically, um, there's, there's a reason why one would critique. Critique is just a fancy word. Really, in my experience, just getting critical feedback. Um, and so that could be a couple of examples. But before we dump, jump into that, let me give you my brief definition of critique. It's really only three things. First and foremost, it's a process for not only giving, but receiving feedback that is critical, but not personal. Chris, I think you hit on that pretty, pretty well. So no, nothing need further there. But the second thing is it should uncover blind spots, much like what Jason was saying. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. But it should also force you to examine your biases or assumptions. One bias that I have is I love the color blue contrasted with um, stark blacks. Like this just a bias. I don't mean it in a sort of negative bias, but there are some of those as well. The third thing, you must enter a critique in a learning state of mind or a growth mindset, whatever term you want to use, because your work can only get better. And I don't mean sitting around tinkering with something, but I've seen Chris look at a piece. Uh, I think it was in your typography course. He'll go, hmm, if you just move this horizontal rule this way, golden, like just one little simple tweak. And if you're willing to be open to that, can be a real game changer. Any of that definition that you would disagree with or add to, Chris? Perfect. All right. So in my experience, I'm typically working with either they're some form of leader, either they're new to leadership or and they don't, you know, they don't know what to do in terms of communicating, getting certain um, design elements out that boost their message, or it could be someone, uh, a team. So like I'll work with teams in advertising who they're wicked good at, um, you know, creating beautiful collateral or web pages, landing pages, or they're really good uh, copywriters, but it, it's, it's rarely, you know, that unicorn that does it all. So it's usually a team and I'm just going to say it. They're a sensitive bunch. And so I've tried to come up with a set of call it rules or a process to critiquing where no one's soul is crushed. So there are two types of critiques. One that I call a work in progress critique. The other I call a milestone critique. Now work in progress sounds much like what it is. It's, it's happening in real time. It's getting some insight from, you know, someone who maybe have a different perspective or it's me reaching out to my client and saying, you know, something like, I, I'm feeling off here. What do you think? Does this, you know, let's say I'm about to do some social media post with some graphics. So I'll get their input. But what I do is I, I ask them to hone in on specific 
feedback, like a select item or a key feature, an attribute. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So Chris, let's say you're in the early stages of a website design. Now, you might seek feedback on the layout of the wireframes versus the use of typography. And so here you want to get a sense of flow and where the viewer's eye is landing. And this can help you correct anything that may challenge the viewer. And it also helps to have a richer discussion. And the beautiful byproduct of, of that is, is you're invariably teaching your client how to speak design, for lack of better words. Another example might be, let's say you're a logo designer or doing some form of brand identity. You might want to just know the gestalt principles and what, what's showing up in your logo versus say color psychology. And this could mean you drew a, a square and a triangle and they're pretty close to one another. And for you, you see a rocket, but your client looks at it and goes, ah, actually I see a house. So these works in progress critiques, when they're done early and often, they can help you avoid those lengthy or disastrous revisions. There, there is something that I want to point out because when you're, I, I think this where, where you're pivoting this conversation is super helpful for anyone who's working with clients because we have to direct the clients into what to look at and how to look at it because they're unfamiliar with our creative process. And if you don't do that, if you don't have a structure for that, you're inviting yourself for disaster basically. Yeah, that's, and I'm, I'm getting to that, but I want to make sure we, as a, as a group, we understand what I see are two common types of critiques. You can push back and say there's some nuance, but really there's just two. What's happening in real time, like help me get through this. And then there's milestone critiques, much like what Chris was describing. The young woman had to present this video, had to be a completed project. And so I would go back to the website again, but this time you have completed a major milestone in creating a checkout page you know, purchasing e-commerce. If you just completed the initial release of the website checkout process and you need genuine feedback to know what's working and what's not, and you have to be open to some of that criticality. And I'll talk about what that means about being open to the criticality. Another example, if you're more on the writing side is brand mission or vision statements. Write it all the way out, put it out there. It might feel a little awkward, but show your full statement and you'll get an opportunity to describe why you chose the words you did, the descriptors and how you got there. So work in progress critique, milestone critique. Now, what are the rules for having a critique? So there's ones I call rules for the creative or you as the presenter and rules for the critic. There's, some might call it rules of engagement, if you will. But for the creative, I'd, I want you to take note, grab a pen if, if you still have it handy. First rule, write down what you wanna present before you present it. What I mean by that is you wanna have it clear in your brain what language you're going to use. What was the design challenge? Be very specific and clear with your language because it helps those who are non-creative and those who are about to give feedback know specifically what to focus on. Uh, once you've written that down and you're actually in presentation mode, here comes rule number two. Don't go more than three minutes. There's just so much we can process. But when it comes to presenting your work, keep it to about three minutes. Sometimes it can go a little bit longer, but I found three minutes is that nice sweet spot. Okay. Once you present, there's a sequence. 
where you ask the critics, are there any clarifying questions? Sometimes language escapes us and it may be confusing to the critic. So that third rule is ask clarifying questions. And I'm going to get into that a little bit more. Then you unpack the feedback. Now it's time for feedback. You start with what I like to call roses. What did you like about my design or whatever the thing is that you're presenting? Once they've exhausted that, then move on. What do you find challenging? And lastly, how might I build on these ideas? The reason you do that, you unpack that is one, it helps you emotionally to kind of get prepared for some of those uh, gut punches that might come your way. But it also forces the critic to write them down as well. They too own it to you to be create, uh, clear and unambiguous about what feedback they're giving you. And this one is the fifth rule, but I think it's the most important. And Chris, I know you'll back me up on this one. Don't defend your idea choices. If someone says something to the effect of, hmm, it's interesting you have, um, you know, purple over here on the call to action button. Well, yeah, that's because, you know, uh, I come from royalty and I really like the color purple. It's like, oh, hold on. <laughs> no defending the ideas. Just sit there and final rule, say thank you. Now, I'll pause there and say one final thing before we move on to rules for the critic. Feedback or criticism is like a gift. You can accept it, you be gracious, but once the critic's out of the room, send it to the return pile. You don't have to listen to it. You don't have to do it. If it's that painful, put it in the return list, like as if it's a wedding gift. Yep, this thing's going back to Williams-Sonoma. So Chris, I'll stop there before I move on to the critic. I like it. I have a slight nuance to the thing, but I, I want you to keep flowing with this. So let's get through it. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. And feel free to interrupt. All right. So th that's the creative. That's you as the presenter. Those are some simple rules. Now the critic, for the, all of you that want to give your opinions, got some rules for you as well. When it's your turn, you can only ask clarifying questions. It is important that you don't say things like, well, you know, you should have done this, or why didn't you add that? What those really are, are advice questions. You're giving advice hidden inside of a question. What you want to do is ask clarifying questions. Maybe during the presentation, they skipped through something and you didn't quite understand, or you want to understand, um, oh, are we only looking at wireframes or are we looking at the typography? Yeah, those are totally reasonable questions for clarification. The next is, of course, as you're listening to the brief or the presentation, you as a critic should be writing down um, what you like, what you found challenging, and what you think can be improved. Um, but when you're, what you think can be improved, you might make suggestions. They don't have to be long-winded notes. You know, they could be an idea on a sticky note or something. But to Chris's point, if it's written down and it's from your perspective, you're then essentially giving the presenter gifts at the end because they'll take those notes and either action on them or not. And keep it one, one sort of idea or one critique per note. And that's it. Provide the written notes to the presenter or the team and hopefully your designer will follow up with you. So I'll stop there, Chris, and let you 
add your nuance. I, I like that. Okay. It, you know, the impulse to tell people what to do is very strong. As you say, the force is strong in this one. And what kind of tips or advice do you have for people who are in a position of giving a critique, whether it's a client or an art director or somebody like that, to resist telling people and being super prescriptive? Well, the first thing I ask them to do is write it down. That's it. Usually when they're writing it down, there's something psychologically as they're writing it, they're like, oh gosh, this seems like it's coming off harsh. Um, it gets you to pause versus what we tend to do as humans. We just blurt things out and then later we're like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. So when you write something down, you have a little bit more clarity on your thoughts and how to express it. That doesn't mean you can't be critical, but maybe it changes the phrasing of the words you use. That's fascinating. I've never done that before. That's really interesting. So before you react, be more intentional and thoughtful with your communication, just the act of writing it down because your hand can only move so fast, right? We write slower than we can speak. So just that moment and looking at the words and forcing us maybe to choose words more carefully, quite interesting approach. Okay, is there anything else? No, the only thing I would add is this is particularly useful if you use a whiteboard or sticky notes, something, I don't want to say physical always, because we're not always, you know, we're in this sort of this weird hybrid remote world, but that, that written sticky note, if you will, it can, it's can be posted up easily. You know, someone can write it, post it, get it off their brain pretty quickly. I find that that's been pretty helpful in my critiques because I might forget something and go back and it's just a nice way to have it available. That's wonderful. So one of the things that I've um, adopted when I was looking at work, both as a professional and as a, as a uh, professor, as an instructor, is to try to tell people, I'm, I'm not always good at this, Eric, because evidence with the many videos that are out there on YouTube, which is I try and say, like, here's what I'm seeing, right? Like if we're in a classroom, it's different. And I know it shouldn't be different, but it is different for me because we have hours to go through stuff. And I don't have to be mindful of the uh, number of people watching it later. Like, God, it took forever to do. And so I'll tell people like, okay, here's what I see in this frame. How does that line up with what your intention is? And, or I'll tell them a lot of I statements versus you statements. You becomes prescriptive and can lead a person to react defensively versus I. Like you can't deny my experiences, right? But you can say, well, I don't like the way you said you to me. So I would say something like, uh, I'm confused by this. I don't know where to look. I think I want to stare at that book, but then this other thing is drawing my eye towards it. And then they get to decide, oh, that, that wasn't my intention. I need to make some adjustments. Mm, can I stop you there? Mm-hmm. That is a great example of a clarifying question. Insofar as you're not giving any advice, you're not even critiquing, really. You, you, I need I need help. And that's a great way to have someone lean into it. Now you, I think you're going to go there, but I think you can unpack the confusion. So please continue. Yeah, I can, I can most definitely unpack the confusion. Um, but I think the thing that you said that really resonated with me was critique is feedback. So I, as the creator of a piece, whether it's a website or a logo, want to make sure my intentions are clear because there's a signal that's transmitted. And then there's another person that receives that signal. This could be your client or it could be your boss. And so what I'm trying to do in the best of my ability is to give that feedback 
and my observations and how I feel and how I experience it and where my eye goes. And then that way you can then make the decisions. The opposite of this is to say, well, this isn't working for me. You should do this. You should change that. So now we're being super prescriptive and the person doesn't actually walk away with the feedback they came in for, which is completely different. Now I've had uh, situations in the past when I was reviewing work from uh, new graduates in my studio. And I remember a time when I was very uncomfortable giving critique because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. Now, this is prior to me teaching. So someone would work really long, maybe even all night. And the next morning we would look at the work and it was a total, this is a very judgmental word, a disaster. Like, I was like, where did we miscommunicate? Because A, the clients will never buy this and I don't even know how this solves the brief. And I'd have to sit down with the person and like feel that tension because they're so excited. They want to see their ideas go through. And I say to them, you know, and I struggled with this because emotionally I don't want to hurt people's feelings and you have a right to explore your, your creativity. And who am I to kind of tamp down your genius, your geniosity, right? And then what happens is we have a conversation and then I start to mix up my words, get a little bit, I meander with the critique and the feedback and then they go away and work and it's pretty much the same. So I've gone through this entire spectrum of like giving very soft, fuzzy critique to then getting super direct and now using more I statements and being less prescriptive. Mm, that raises something for me as well, Chris. Uh, you, sometimes you just have to enter a state of critique. Like meaning maybe you weren't ready to have that discussion if, you're, if your words were meandering or maybe I'm misreading. Is that because you were not being as direct as you'd like and you were using soft words or were you just not in the zone? I was um, hiding my true feedback. Mm, yeah. Okay. There's something I want to do. I want to make a distinction on. And Chris, you do this. Man, I would totally give you a real hug. Every time you get on these platforms and someone comes up and wants to ask you a question, you're like, ask the question. Don't give me your story, ask your question. And you're really dogmatic about that. And I mean that in a good way because you're not trying to waste your time and others, but it gets to clarity. And that's what I think is the most important thing here is if both the critic and the presenter are very, very clear, hey, Chris, I only want you to critique X, Y, and Z then you spend less time on the A and the B and the C and like, oh, why'd you choose purple? Why'd you choose green? Blah, blah, blah. No, just can you tell me, does the flow work? Is the copyright? Does the CTA look good? Like if it's that clear, then there's less feelings to be hurt because you've been given permission to, I don't want to say attack, but sort of critique narrowly what it is you want Chris to, to look at. So sorry, I, I interrupted you there, but <laughs> you hit it. Not at all. I don't know. I appreciate that. Um, Anki, do you have a really short story that you want to share about how it feels to be on the receiving end? Not the whole story, just how you feel when you, you're the person receiving a pretty direct critique. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, Eric. And I think I've tried most of the strategies mentioned by Eric here, and I think they work. So before applying this strategy, and I learned the strategies from Future and Chris from you. 
So before this, I had tendencies to defend my design decisions. Like whenever I present my work, I would ask my client, like, do you like this? And this typically led to like a very vague criticism. Like they were telling this, I don't like this color. Or can you change the font? Or can you like uh, try these creative ideas? So they will have their own creative ideas. And when I started using these uh, techniques, like uh, I would ask them, what does the end user would feel like? Let's say they are a target person as someone. And I, I would name them like, let's say someone is Paul, uh, their target client. And what would the client would feel like? Is it easy, easily accessible to Paul? So I think this was a big shift in mind. And one other, another strategy which I tried was that uh, I would detach myself from my work. Let's say when I've finished a design, I would try to not be emotionally attached to it. So it would be just out there and I would let like a uh, client give their feedback and I would take it as it they say, and I would find if there are some valuable insights there, which I can improve upon. And yeah, so this is probably my experience when taking criticism. Thank you very much for sharing, Ankit. Eric, your thoughts before we wrap up? No, that was good. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, whether you like the teaching theory, the critiquing theory for professionals, or us just critiquing social media posts, let us know, message both of us, and we'll be sure to do this again, and we'll give you more of what you want. With that, bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.